Hey, hey. Okay, so you guys know that I've moved my platform over to Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash Jamie Glowacki. So everything is moved there. That's where I'm now housing all my parenting content. For a dollar a month, you can access all the episodes of my podcast, but no worries if you don't want to do any financial commitment at all. We'll continue to release selected episodes here on your favorite listening platform. And just so you know, I also put up free public posts and mini podcasts on that Patreon page. So all you have to do is head over to that main page, patreon.com slash Jamie Glowacki, and you can see my free public posts and mini podcasts. Head over there to check it all out. And now on to today's show. Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hey, welcome, welcome. All right. So we are moving on from trauma and I just want to thank you guys for the incredible feedback you gave me with the trauma episodes. It was a huge undertaking. I have never agonized over podcasts more. (laughs) I spent hours crafting each episode and I just, I wanted to do the subject justice. And I feel like I really did based on your feedback. So thank you. Thank you. It's so amazing to not create in a vacuum, <laughs> but I owe you guys a Q&A because I didn't want to interrupt our trauma work with Q&As. So I have some stockpiled questions and let's hit them today. A lot of them have to do with sleep as well as some other issues. So I just want to jump right in. So Cheyenne wrote, my three-year-old looks down and hides her face when a stranger talks to her. When she doesn't answer, they always say, oh, she's shy. She used to talk to people, but after many people saying she's shy, I think she does it now because it's easier. How can I approach this? I can see she's uncomfortable, but she also doesn't like being called shy. She has also started doing this with relatives she used to talk to, like my mom and my sister. So, I think the issue with shy kids, there's a couple of things. I know people whose kids were shy to the point of being obnoxious, would cling, hide behind their mother's legs, and the kids ended up being fine. You know, later they were fine, you know, seven, eight years old. This, I think, is just a personal preference. Me personally, I, that drives me nuts. It drives me nuts when you say hello and somebody just, you know, looks at you and turns away, be it a child or an adult. So I just don't think it's a good coping skill. But again, I think there's a wide swath here of personal preference. So there's plenty of people who are like, eh, leave them alone. They're just kids, you know? But I think you're right, Cheyenne, in that I think it can start to shape our personality. So how I dealt with this with Pascal, Pascal was a very, he was a shy kid, but more like he he was a very intense toddler. We go back now and I look and I'm like, dude, you were so intense. (laughs) But he he was the kind of kid who just had to survey the, the landscape before jumping in. So it wasn't necessarily a shy as much as it was like a, let me figure everything out before I do anything. But I didn't, I had very little patience for ignoring people who said hello. And I'm not, you don't have to kiss anybody. You don't have to hug anybody. You don't even have to high five anybody. But when he went through this stage, I would tell him, I said, listen, you can be shy at the party or you can be shy when we walk in, but you must say hello. Because I feel like that's base 
human interaction. You know, if somebody says hello to you and you just look at them and hide your face, I think that's not teaching anybody anything. So I, we would go in, he would say hello. It would be, you know, like, hi, hi, grandma. Hi, you know, to whoever it was. And then he could hide behind my leg if he wanted to. And he always warmed up. So I think there's that allowing, you know, validating, like you can be shy, but you have to say hello. And that's my, again, I think this, I know there's just plenty. I think it's kind of where you lie on the on the sort of hippy dippy parenting scale. <laughs> and like, you know, there's definitely people who are like, let, let them just do whatever they want. And and again, I have seen kids be just fine with that. But for me personally, I just I, I just don't like it. So allowing the child their feelings, but putting some parameters around it, I think is also kind of good. Lenka has written, I co-slept with my son in bed, one bed for a long time. Frankly, I love being next to him. I stopped doing that. And then my mom passed away and I went back to co-sleeping. I am not joking when I say that he really helped me with grief of losing my mom. Having him next to me was so comforting, but now he won't sleep alone. We read him a bedtime story, wait until he's asleep and leave his bedroom. Each night around 1 a.m., he comes upstairs to our bedroom, wakes me up, and wants me to go to his bedroom with him where I fall asleep until it's time to wake up. Or he brings his pillow and blanket, puts it on the couch right outside our bedroom, and sleeps there until the morning, preferably with me. I'm exhausted waking up three times a night when I refuse to go with him, so usually I cave. How can I stop this madness? Thank you. All right, so my here's my thoughts on co-sleeping. I really don't care. I don't care where your kid sleeps. I don't care where you sleep. I don't care where your spouse sleeps. I don't care where your dog sleeps as long as everybody sleeps and as long as it's working for everybody, which clearly this is not. I co-slept. I loved it. I co-slept and, you know, they do get to an age where they're like, no, I'm out of here, you know? So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Again, as long as everybody's doing well. I do, like, I'm really glad it helped you with the grief of your mom. And I do caution people like, you know, that's water under the bridge. So we don't even need to talk specifically for your scenario. But I do think be cautious. Like if you're co-sleeping because you need your child in bed with you, I think that's where it can get a little wonky. But I do think we're humans. We crave warmth. Like nobody likes to sleep alone. Everybody likes to be cuddled up with somebody or for most of the (laughs) night. I actually really enjoy sleeping alone now. But what anytime you are co-sleeping, what you have to realize, this happened a lot in the pandemic. Parents, like everybody was high anxiety. People were scared. Everything went to hell in a handbasket as far as routine and screen time and all the nonsense. And so a lot of co-sleeping started. And what you have to realize with kids is once you start something, it's really hard to break it. So you know, just know that like whenever you say like, oh, I just let them into my bed this once. Oh, it's a slippery slope because that just once it's law, it's toddler law. So, you know, first of all, know that. So when setting up the habit and you guys, I'm sure you know this, you know that if you let them into your bed, they're going to want to do it all the time. The only way you can stop any bad sleep habits and people write in with all kinds of various scenarios, but it boils down to this. If you continue to cave, you support the behavior, you're not going to change. So it has to, you have to gear up for a couple of nights of misery where you're going to just put him back to his room. You go back to your bed. The minute you cave, and I say this without judgment or without emotion, the minute you cave, you just reinforce the behavior. And all he learns is, okay, well, you know, it's just like caving for a tantrum. When I talk about like the kid who, you know, is crying for candy in the market 
checkout line and you say, no, 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 four times. And then you cave. He's just learned that the next time it's going to take five times for you to say no before you cave. So that's the big thing. And, and nobody wants to hear it because it's really, there's no easy way out. You have to stop the madness by stopping the madness. Put him back in his room. Don't say a word. Just put him back in his room, back in his room, back in his room, back in his room and create the new behavior. Yeah. I, it's so tricky with sleep because I know you need, you need your sleep. So that's why you cave. But what I would do is prepare and prepare with your spouse and have backup. I know when I was dealing with sleep issues, Pascal was little when I sleep trained and I happened to have a, um, a nanny and she, you know, she helped me and we, we worked in shifts through the night. So neither one of us was totally tapped out. I would work with your spouse and be like, okay, we got to, we got to nail this down. It might take, you know, three or four days, three or four nights, but you have to like carve the time so you can afford to be tired when you're dealing with it. And that goes for any sort of behavior is it's, not the easiest way, but you just have to stop. So I get all kinds of questions about sleep and well, he comes into my bed or he wakes up and I say, well, if you keep doing it, it's just going to keep happening. On that note, I did want to bring up a issue that seems to be happening. It sort of peaked in the pandemic months here this last year. God, can you believe we're going on a year? It's kind of crazy, right? But there's a, there's a habit, there's something happening where parents are allowing some sort of undesirable, unpleasant behavior just to continue and continue and continue. And it's a little astounding to me, maybe because I'm just really pragmatic. So I'm like, there's a problem, let's fix it. But what I'm seeing over and over again is, well, well, we're doing this and it's not really working, but we're going to keep doing it. And there's definitely like a learning curve. Like, let's take the thing with go, you know, fixing a bad sleep habit. There's definitely like, you're going to have to do it many times in a row. There's definitely consistency and commitment and just repetition with kids and with teaching them something. But if something's not working, you really have to look at that and you have to say, okay, well, how can I do something different here? So even I know like just for example, and I, I don't often talk about potty training in this podcast, but I had record numbers of people whose kids were pooping their pants for two years. They ended up having to deal with it because they were like with the kid in the house in the pandemic. And it seemed like a really good time to deal. But I, but, you know, and I, I say this, it's going to sound like judgment, but it's, it's more like a, astonishment, which is like, at what point do you, keep thinking it's going to turn around after two years. So if you find yourself doing something that's not working and you say, you know, like, like, like this mama, you know, he keeps coming into my bed. How can I stop? It's not working. Just stop. You have to stop it. You have to stop it. You have to change something. And so there's somehow, and, and Link, I'm not saying this to you, but there's sometimes this like victim mentality with um, that I'm seeing and it's it's new. So I think it's somehow related to the anxiety, the pandemic, or, or maybe the pandemic brought it to a head. Uh, but it's this, you know, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, and it's not working. So you have to change course. And sometimes that change in course, it has to be abrupt and it has to be, you know, just stop. And, and I keep saying this, it's, it's a chapter in the 12 Roofs of Life by Jordan Peterson. And don't allow your child to do something that makes you dislike them or resent them. If you allow behavior that you resent, 
you're going to not like your kid and that's going to come out and you're going to turn into psycho mom or you're going to get tapped out. And I think, I just think that's like really good advice is, is if you're allow your child to do anything like, and, and it's not Linka, like, it's not that you dislike your kid, but you're exhausted. So yeah, just don't, don't cave is the question. And I, and I know it's very easy for me to sit here and say, don't cave, you know, stay up all night. But I do think in this situation, it's about carving some time to allow, allow the process of reforming the habit where you're going to be tired. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Like if something's not working, change it. And there's so many options. There's so many options in parenting. There's so many options in life. Um, just try to see it from a different lens and, and a, a wide scope out and, and just change it. So Sarah wrote in, moving on, um, I have a question about sibling play. I have an almost four-year-old and a six-year-old who are very different. My six-year-old is very structured in how she wants to play. For example, she likes to come up with a specific scenario with characters and props, and she wants her and her sister to play it out. When my spontaneous four-year-old jumps in with any ideas, my six-year-old either tells her no and squashes the creativity and eventually gets annoyed with the Um, until the game is changed and it leads to them screaming, crying, and hitting. When I try to encourage her before the upset begins to listen to little sister's ideas, sometimes she gets defensive. I feel so bad that my younger never gets a say in anything. And once the fighting has started, it's obviously impossible to explain. When and how can I help her to let others have a say when playing? Or should I not get involved at all except to keep them safe if a scuffle starts? This is a great question because generally speaking, I'm like, let them hash it out. I think, though, your focus on trying to get the six-year-old to change is the wrong focus. I would focus on the four-year-old and saying, don't play with her. So you can talk to your six-year-old and say, the way you're playing isn't very fair to the other person. And you know, nobody's going to want to play with you if you are in charge of all the play. And you can say that a billion times, but it's not going to, it's not going to hit her until nobody wants to play with her. And it's really funny because there are these lessons as a, just a small tangent. It's been snowing here in Rhode Island and we have been sledding. And so my friend came over, she got three boys and one is little and he's a little, he's a little defiant. And so he loves to stand kind of like in the way, or he doesn't move really quickly out of the sledding path. And I was like, well, she was like, what can I do? And I was like, he got to be taken down because there, you can tell a kid to move, to move, to move, but no kid really gets it until they are swiped off their feet by the guy coming down the hill. And sure enough, it happened. And then the kid was like scuttling out of the way every time. And I feel like it's that same lesson with um, swings. You know, you can tell your kid, don't walk in front of the kid swinging. But until your kid gets clobbered with that swing, those legs coming at them, the lesson is done. And so it's not like I want our kids being all beat up and <laughs> swept up their feet. But this is one of those things you can talk till you're blue in the face. But until she sees that nobody wants to play with her, she's not going to bend in her play. So what I would do is focus on the four-year-old and say, listen, do you, like catch her. Like, are, if you go in this game, six-year-old is going to tell you what to do and you're not going to be happy about it. Would you like to do something by yourself? And at that point, if four-year-old decides to keep going in, then you say, okay, well, you guys are going to have to work this out and then keep them safe when the scuffle starts. But I would, that's what I would do is I would focus on the four-year-old not playing with her because that kind of bossiness is, is partly age and 
it's structured and it's like, it's definitely the first child. It's a first child thing for sure. Play my way or don't play at all. But she's got to learn that the hard way. And so if she's just playing by herself and doesn't get, you know, doesn't get to play with her little, um, her little sister, well, she's going to figure it out. And then, you know, I would watch it. Is it just sibling? Is it just bossiness with her sister? Or is this how she plays with everybody? Because that's a hard lesson. And I, I've seen it in my personal life. I've seen those kids who then nobody wants to play with them because they're not fun, you know? <laughs> and, and I would just back that up with like, did you see that so-and-so didn't really want to play with you? You're being, you're being too bossy or you're being too structured. Bossy is probably not a great word. I hate, you know, little girls get to be, you know, there's that meme about bossy, bossy girls later in life, but right now they're going to kill you. But I would try to point out like you're being too strict in your play or you're not allowing other people's ideas. Maybe that's a better way to frame it um, and see if it, it, you know, I know probably right now it's hard in the pandemic without a lot of um, other play, but I would see if that, that kind of play carries over to other people because you just need to, you just need to highlight it all the time. Like, this is what's happening. Do you see what's happening? Maybe you should accept other people's ideas. Um, all right. Another question came up about, and I've heard this in several forms, um, driving your child around to get them to sleep. And it came in various forms. One mama said that just at home, it's a nightmare. Going to bed is a huge ordeal. So they just pack him in the car. They drive around and he's asleep in five minutes. You know, her husband has said, don't worry about it. Nobody in college has their mom drive them around. (laughs) And so I wanted to address kind of two things in in this particular scenario. Number one, I'm going to start off by saying with sleep, I want not only as a parenting expert, potty training expert, do I think sleep is the most important thing as a human being, as a, a woman who has a busy life, sleep is everything. So I also come into this with a huge bias in my twenties. I had insomnia to the point of crazy making, like there is a reason they use sleep deprivation as a torture device. And so I have vowed to Sleep is uh, of the utmost priority with my kid because I think the best gift you can give your child is good sleep habits. And so I do come into this with that sort of bias. I do not like driving around for sleep. I think it's a very bad habit and it teaches the child to not fall asleep on their own. We know this because we know this through sleep training and sleep experts that we don't come into the world knowing how to sleep. We create good sleep habits, right? Um, We come into the world wanting food all the time. (laughs) And I agree with nursing on demand when the child is an infant. Uh, But at some point we do, we have to teach our children how to sleep and sleep, good sleep habits. So I don't like the driving around to sleep. I think it's worth figuring out why sleep is hellacious. So we need to sleep. We need to sleep to rejuvenate. The body really wants to sleep and the body wants to sleep a long time, way more than we give it in, in our busy society. So there's a glitch. There's a glitch there why, he, why your kid might not be falling asleep. I have found in my work, and I'm not a sleep expert, but what I have found through working with lots of sleep experts and working with kids is that you always want to err on the side of too much sleep. If your child is not in the right circadian rhythm, they will have a hard time falling asleep. And I literally just was working with a client and I said, like the kid was going to bed at 8, 8.15 and not falling asleep till like 9.30. And I was like, that's too late for a three-year-old. 8, 8.15 is too late. So this this mom just like 
ripped the Band-Aid off. She's like, yeah, I got her into bed at 6.30 and she was asleep within five minutes. So she pulled it back by a lot. Usually I recommend going in 15-minute increments, but it's almost always that the kid's in the wrong circadian rhythm. And this goes for us as as adults too. And I don't know if you've noticed this. I've really locked into it because I live a pretty quiet life, but I go to bed, my circadian rhythm, I have to go to bed between nine and 10 o'clock. If I'm up till 10.30, I start a new circadian rhythm and I really can't get to sleep till like two in the morning. And I'm sure you've noticed that in some sort of capacity. It's like, wow, if I stay up at this time, I'm up for hours. Well, kids are like that too. And so it's almost always pulling it back to an earlier bedtime. And I know this gets really, there's like a whole, we could go down a whole nother path with this because a lot of times dinner what happens is dinner is actually too late for kids. And so if you haven't read that chapter in Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler, please do about dinner times because it's really, really important. And maybe I'll do like a a little, uh, uh, another whole podcast on that alone, but, or maybe I'll just talk about it now. (laughs) So what's happening in our society is because of work schedule. So back in the day, again, you guys know I'm 52. So I give you that for like time, age reference, year reference. So in my childhood, dads usually went to work. It was, that was the, it's a generalization, but, but it was largely true. 90, 95% of the time dads were the breadwinner left the house. They came home. You go home at five, you go home at five o'clock and you were done. You didn't check emails. You didn't take phone calls. Like your work day was done. My mom, like, you know, had, um, dinner on the table. We were all showered and in PJs. There wasn't TV. There wasn't, you know, the work schedule was so different. So what started to happen is that because of work schedules now and bringing home work, we have dinner time for toddlers at 6 37 o'clock. Now what's happening for the most part is that kids are miserable and parents will say that they're like, oh, it's so hard to get them to eat. It's so hard, you know? So your dinner time ends up being this cluster fuck where you're like, one more bite, one more bite, your kid's squirming and awful. And then when I broach to parents this idea that we need to go to bed earlier, they're like, well, I can't because dinner time, then bath, then all of this. And I'm like, just put the kid to bed. And I've worked with so many clients for like, they buck against this because they want to have dinner with the kid. They want this whole nighttime routine, but the toddler's not going to bed till like eight, eight 30. Then they're struggling and they're not going to bed till nine o'clock or to sleep. So the number one thing you have to know about kid toddler sleep is it does not work like grown-up sleep. So keeping them up later will not make them sleep later. Sleep begets sleep. The more sleep they get, the more they sleep. And there are very, I've worked with so many sleep experts and I'm like, I keep having parents say they have the kid who's a night owl. And they're like, no, it's really not. It's just a bad habit. So what happens is you really have to pull dinner earlier for the kids and dinner, food, eating, just like sleep, there are rhythms for your child's hunger. So, you know, most kids are starving around 3.30, 4 o'clock. So parents give them a snack and a, a snack by definition for kids is like goldfish or usually something carby. The kid eats it like a maniac because they're starving. Then of course they're not hungry for dinner. So I, and this is anecdotally more and more, like if you Google this, you'll pull up 800 blog posts because more and more parents are figuring this out. Feed your kid dinner at that 3.34 o'clock time. Feed them the nutritious food you want. And it doesn't have to be this beautiful meal. It has to be nutritious. And that's about it. And then they can sit with you at six o'clock if you want, and they can color or read the book, or then they have the snack. So that dinner time is pleasant. But you also can, if you come home from work at six, 
and your kid has to go to sleep at seven, why make it dinner time at all with a toddler? It's totally unnecessary. Wouldn't it be great to use that time to have this like really connected time with your kid? Fill their bucket, read stories, play a game, wrestle, like have these really amazing moments before bed with your kid instead of dinner. And people will argue me. They're like, well, you know, there's all these studies about family dinner, family dinner and creating good food habits. Yes, but not right now, not under five. It's really unnecessary that sitting down family dinner being the grounding thing. Really, you guys, that's like when your kid starts to go to school and they're going for peer orientation and you might be kind of like, losing them a little and you want to keep them grounded in the home life. These first five years, you're just like, get the nutrition in them and sleep, 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 sleep. So that was kind of a a long tangent, Sarah. I mean, not Sarah, but um, this mama who wrote in, it's, you know, I would say that most of the problems with driving a kid to sleep are because they they can't fall asleep on their own. And I would figure that glitch out, which again, normally that ends up being that they need to go to bed a lot earlier. And if you guys have any questions about this, again, I wrote a whole chapter of it in Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler, but I'd say it's the biggest change. When parents do this, they come back and they're like, oh my God, my life is totally different. They get this like well-connected, juicy time with their kid after work instead of fighting over one more fucking bite. Like that's just nonsense. And again, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and it's not really working, it's not great to send your kid off to bed after like a contentious dinner time either. You know what I mean? So that's what I would say. I just, I think, and oh, I also wanted to bring up, so this one mama wrote that her husband said, you know, he's not gonna go to college and he's right. Your, your kid's not going to go to college with any of the issues probably that are plaguing you when he's three. And I don't want to slam this dad at all, but that's just a really weak, that's a weak argument in general. And I hear this in potty training and I hear this about all behavior, which is like when they go to college, they're not going to hit, you know, when they go, they're not going to be in diapers till they're, you know, when they're in college. The difference between three years old and college age is humongous. There will be a lot of growth. Yes, nobody might drive your kid around when he's in college, but your child might have really shitty sleep habits. And do you want to send your kid off in the world with really shitty sleep habits? No. So I think it's just that's kind of like a straw man argument. That being said, I do think that if you guys, you know, look, we had a pandemic. Our kids are up our ass. Like we're in this really odd time. So if you need it as a temporary measure, like you got to do what you got to do. If you have to get your sleep now, that's okay. But I would definitely set an end date and be like, we got to deal with this. We have to deal with this because your kid's not going to turn around and be like, oh, okay, never mind. Don't drive me. Like the more it becomes a habit, the more it becomes a habit. So I would definitely set. And again, what happens is I think all of a sudden you turn around and your kid is in first grade and you're still driving them around. And you're like, wait, how did that happen? And you go, oh, because we never really set an end date. So that's what I would do. If you have to do it because something's happening, you know, even with the co-sleeping, you know, there's a, a family tragedy and you have to do it for now. That's cool. But just make sure that you you do set a date to attend to it so that your child can get those really good sleep habits. Giving up the binky. So I had somebody write in that they were trying to give the, take the binky away. Binky um, nook. You know what I'm talking about. Pacifier. (laughs) That's the word. When they were trying to give the binky up slowly and they were trying to do it, like there was a time where their child would go to sleep with it and they'd come in and take the binky and then the child would be upset. 
they were trying to do it slowly. And I understand the impetus of taking away a binky slowly because it's really harsh to just take it away. The problem is if you try to give up the binky slowly, particularly if you let your child go to bed with it and you come in and take it, that's not really fair to the child. So I think it can cause a great deal of stress because what the fuck happened to my binky, right? Like if they go to bed without a binky, it might be hard to get to sleep, but they go to sleep knowing they don't have a binky. So I think that trying to give up a binky or a blankie or any sort of transitional object that your child's become attached to, giving it up slowly is super fucking stressful on the child. And I know that feels like... It feels like doing it at once would be more stressful, but it's not. It's like the child will get over it much quicker if it's done quickly. So I'm a big fan of, you know, same thing with diapers, binkies, blankies. It's like, okay, it's got to go away. Some people choose to say the binky fairy came and is giving it to a baby. You know, you can concoct some sort of mythological thing. That's cool. I don't, I don't care about that. Or I have heard of this other way that people have had a lot of success with, which is slowly cutting a hole in the binky. And every day you widen that hole just a little bit. So what ends up happening is they end up losing the suction. And then it just becomes undesirable because they can't suck anymore and they give it up quite naturally on their own. And it takes about a week. The only thing that I would concern me about that way of giving up a binky is I would be afraid the child was taking in a lot of air. So you might want to watch for gas or burps because they're sucking in air. But I have heard that that's the best way from people anecdotally that 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 was very, very successful. So those are just two ways to do it. But again, I want to remind you that changing a habit slowly for a child is actually stressful because there's a lot of uncertainty as to like, well, what are we talking about here? And that's how I feel when people try to give up, you know, use pull-ups to potty train. Like, are you fucking kidding me? It's a diaper. Like you can't give a kid a diaper and then be like, but go in the toilet. It's just such a mixed message that I think that's even more stressful. All right. Last question. What happens when your child continues to ask for something and you continue to say no and the child doesn't stop asking and then finally you lose your shit? How do you let your child know they've been heard? What can you say besides no? All right. This is a good one. So, you know, toddlers are relentless. But remember, and I, you know, we said this earlier about co-sleeping. I say this about tantrums. What you do will continue. So if your child will not stop asking. There are these phases that kids go through. One of them is the why phase. Why, 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 right? One of them is the no, um, the, the won't take no for an answer, right? They're just relentless. But here's the deal. They're quick learners. They're so fast. The kids are so fast at learning. And so if you say no, and then two more times later, you cave and say yes, Again, no guilt, no emotion, no shame, no philosophy. Your kid has just learned that you cave. So they've learned that if I keep asking, she will give it to me. So I think, you know, when you want your child to be heard, number one, say the thing. Say, I hear you. I hear that you're asking for this. And my answer is no. If you don't stop asking me, I'm going to ignore you. Or I'm going to ask you to go to your room or something like that, right? We always had a tear. And I taught Pascal this like really young. And he he got the concept, which was no means no. Yes means yes. And maybe means probably, but if you keep being up my ass, it's going to turn into a no. (laughs) He like totally got that. And no, when I say no, 
It is a hard no. And you can cry and you can pitch a fit and you can get mad at me, but the answer is no. 90% of the time with me, it's a maybe because I want to say no because mom's first instinct is to say no. But usually I'd be like, hmm, I need a minute to think about this. Is this a hard no? And so I think part of it is for you, the parent, to take that minute and tell, so establish in your house, like, I need a minute to think about it, but if you keep asking me, it's a no. And so it's almost always a yes. The maybe would almost always turn into a yes. And and that is me kind of going off on another little tangent here. I think for some reason as parents, no is like our first instinct. It's so funny, no. And then you, you think about it for a minute and you're like, why did I say no? They could totally do that, you know, or we could totally stop here, whatever it is. And then you back your no up. So it's that same thing that I talk about in Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler, that that sort of, you got to get good at that pause. Like, am I going to cave? Am I exhausted? Because if I'm in a cave, cave now, cave early and be generous. If you know that you have it in you to not cave, then no means no, right? But don't say no when you're in a vulnerable spot where you know your kid's going to wear you down. And I think that's the thing that most like parenting experts or articles or whatever you read about parenting, they don't take that into consideration. Like the real life aspect of like, I use the example all the time. You're in, you know, you have a full week's worth of groceries in the car. You're in the checkout line where the candy is conveniently eye level for your kid. Your kid starts to hound you for the candy. Are you going to cave? And be realistic. Like, I don't care. Be realistic because if you're going to cave, cave early. Yes, here, have the M&Ms. I would love you to be quiet while I get through here. If you're not feeling that, if your child starts to have a fallout, are you going to get out of line? Are you going to be embarrassed? Are you going to cave because your kid's throwing a fit and you just got to get out of this fucking grocery store with these groceries? Is that what's going to happen? If that's going to happen and you know it, and come on, we do know, we know when we're vulnerable, right? If that's going to happen, cave early. So I would say when your kid starts to ask you for something, you got to do that quick thing and then make it a yes, make it a maybe, or make it a no. And then you have to deal with the no fallout. So when you do choose these hard no's, let them know, go ahead, have your tantrum. That's great. That I, I would tell Pascal that all the time, cry, go ahead. You can cry. That's fine. But crying's never going to change my mind. And I taught him also pretty young. Like, if you want to try to argue me, if you want to debate, if you can have an M&M for breakfast, I would love to hear your thoughts. And chances are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give in. If you can use some skills, but crying and throwing yourself on the floor, that is not a skill. So find another skill. And what I ended up with is a kid who's like a little lawyer because he can debate his way out. He got me so confused when he was like four years old. I was like, What? All right. Yeah, you can you can have it. But you know what I mean? Teach your kid that there are other skills besides crying, relentless asking and make that just like a firm thing. And again, there was kind of a theme through this whole podcast. What you continue to do fosters the habit. Just plain and simple. Take any other thing out of it. Take all the emotion. Take any mom guilt. What you continue to do teaches your child that it's okay. And if it's not working for you, change it. And you can change it suddenly. You can change it in the future. You set a date to change it, but change the thing that's not working for you. All right, you guys, so fun to do a Q&A. We haven't done one in so long. And as always, rock on. I thank you, thank you for your questions, your support, and your feedback. Thanks, guys. All right, I'm gonna sign off for today. You can always go to jamieglowacki.com for the super cool latest updates, including the launch of my new book, Yummy New Book Presale Treats, 
when we release new episodes, and how to work with me directly. And of course, if you need any potty training help, there's a handy link there that will take you to all my potty training resources, including all my courses. That's the Oh Crap Potty Training online course, my pooping solutions course, and my night training supplement. And if you need additional help, how to book with a certified Oh Crap consultant. That's all at jamieglowacki.com. Have a beautiful day and rock on.